Please join me in a prayer. Father God, thank you for this beautiful morning, for the warmth of this time and this part of the season. We pray that as you provide all things for us, the the air that we breathed this morning, the the sun that shines down on us, uh, the shelter that uh, we enjoyed this morning, we ask that you will fill us with joy, joy over knowing who you are, joy over the presence of Jesus that can transform any life, the joy that comes from living life with the knowledge that even though the world around us may be at times filled with chaos, that there is a God who meets us in the midst of all of this, who knows us, who cares about us, who has a plan for our lives, who transforms even the broken parts of our lives so that we can add value to others, so that we can contribute to your great cause through the ages of gathering people in love and grace and joy to know you to share intimacy with you, and to make a difference in a a world that so badly needs hope. I pray for all the people of North River. As this COVID period goes on, we are scattered, and we long for fellowship together. And so I pray that you would even magnify the use of technology and being able to do what we're doing right now, to knit our hearts around a purpose and around our shared identity in Christ, and that you would draw us closer together. I pray for those who have joined with us during this time who, who may not be physically in, in uh, close proximity to North River Church, but who nonetheless have become a part of our church family via technology. And I ask that you would expand your presence in their lives, that you would continue to Uh, give each one a sense of leading and purpose and and grace, and that you would do great things through us together. We pray for those who are hurting. We pray for those who who need wisdom this week, that you will hear their cries and their prayers. We pray for our nation, for all of our government leaders and elected officials, from uh, those who are closest to home right on to the White House. And we ask that you would give them great wisdom, that you'd give them great restraint, that you'd give them boldness to do what is right, that you would also give them a a sense of how to create a common good and pull people together. And Lord, we ask that today as we look into your word that you would continue to further your purpose in transforming us to be more like Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to North River. I'm glad that you're here. I was asked this week by a friend to describe North River, and my description was, it's a place where no one is perfect, where all are welcome, and where God is transforming us daily with the power of the love of Jesus and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'd like to urge those of you who are aware of the Global Leadership Summit to go ahead and sign up. That's happening on two days, August 6th and 7th, and I think that the need for leadership and leadership training is even more uh, greatly apparent today than ever before. One extra benefit, we were told this week that there was one more uh, world-class leader who has signed on to be a part of the, the summit this year, and that is former President George W. Bush, who will be a, a part of that. 
Uh, he's going to talk about the decisions, the hard decisions that he had to make during his eight years of presidency. So I invite you to go ahead and to join us for that digital experience this year. This morning, our, our topic is evaluating gains and losses from the first part of chapter 3 in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Over the past two weeks, I have been taking a couple of classes through Denver Seminary. And one of my assignments in, in one of those classes for this week was to write a paper that talks about uh, my ministry experiences and my philosophy of ministry. And then each of us in this class were given 10 minutes to summarize what was basically a 20-page paper and to describe it very simply. And we were, we were challenged to talk about what makes us unique in ministry and how has God used the experiences in our lives so far. So this is part of what I shared in that class. For most people, your view of leadership is shaped in a crucible, which is a, a time where you are tested greatly. And for me, that crucible came through the lens of sports. In football, I played the position of fullback from the eighth grade through my senior year of college. Fullback is a very interesting position. Even though you're in the backfield on a football team, the spotlight doesn't shine on the fullback in the same way that it might on the star quarterback or on the star running back. Fullbacks do a lot of blocking, and once in a while they catch a pass, once in a while they take a carry into the middle of the line for some of the tough yards, and every once in a while you even score a touchdown. But what's unique about fullbacks is they, they, they get knocked down on every play. And then they get back up again, and they do it again. Playing fullback has become something of a metaphor of life for me. I don't always get things right on the first try, and I get knocked down often. But I believe that God wired me to keep getting back up and to try again on the next play. And so it is with my pastoral ministry. Sometimes I'm asked to take on tough assignments, like when we set out to create a church that would be a safe place for seekers and skeptics to come and ask questions and feel that they could kick the tires of Christianity in order to check out if it's true. There are a number of church leaders around New England who told me this will never work. The idea that you're trying will never, ever work in New England. Sometimes those words became attacks and they hurt. But the group of us that started North River just kept getting back up and trying again, and we're still here. Different from the church movement that I was raised in, we took a stand that we believe that God has wired up women with many leadership gifts and that the Church of Jesus Christ is called to be a place where both men and women serve together with respect and equality. There were some who criticized that decision based on an interpretation of the Bible that I think lives out the primary vision of the church that the Apostle Paul had in Galatians 3.28 where he said when we are united in Christ, there's, there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, or even male or female, for we are all one in Christ. Paul wasn't saying this is the way the church is today, but this is where the church is headed based on what Christ has set loose. And we have been working toward that vision from the beginning of our time together. And so we shook off the criticism and we just kept going. A few years later, an invitation came for us to partner with one of the oldest historically black churches in Boston, People's Baptist Church, in order to try to make a difference in the Boston public schools. Some people behind the scenes asked us, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? Don't you belong in the suburbs? 
But then you and I shook off that criticism and we took a busload of people on more than one occasion for work projects in the city, in the Boston Public Schools, and along with our partners at People's Baptist. And the folks at People's Baptist became our mentors and our friends and our partners in this process. And thus a three-month project turned into an 11-year partnership that blessed three urban schools and became a model for the difference that church partnerships can make in the Boston Public Schools. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Part of recalculating involves the process of looking back and evaluating gains and losses along the way. And that is exactly what we find the Apostle Paul doing as we read Philippians chapter 3, at least the opening half of the chapter. So welcome back to North River today. I'm glad that you're here. In our recalculating series, we have seen how the Apostle Paul was recalculating the priorities and the methods of his ministry. Two years in house arrest were forcing him to recalculate. And in the paragraphs of Scripture that we'll study today, we're going to see how Paul was evaluating gains and losses that come from following Jesus. Now, put this in the mindset that since the middle of March, you and I every week have been recalculating the daily patterns of our lives. Here is the key for today, the key idea. Great joy comes when we give up everything that interferes with total reliance upon Jesus. When you and I can fully rely on Jesus and strip away everything else, joy begins to come into our lives and the way that we minister together. Now, before we dive into this, you have to realize that there are three prior events that were shaping Paul's thinking that folks in Philippi would have been aware of and that you and I need to be aware of as well. The first was his transforming encounter with Jesus that's recorded in Acts chapter 9. Prior to his encounter with Jesus, Paul had been proud of his role as chief prosecutor who was arresting Christians. He was a well-educated Pharisee known in those days as Saul of Tarsus, and he had been put in charge of arresting Christians in order to stamp out this early Christian movement. His very name caused fear in Christians around Jerusalem and in the regions nearby. But the risen Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. He saw a great light, it blinded him, and then he heard the voice of Jesus calling to him, Saul, Saul, and he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Get up and you will be told what you must do. And Saul, blind for three days, was led into the city of Damascus to the home of a man named Simon. And there Jesus spoke to Simon and he said, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my gospel to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Now that's who Paul was in his earlier life. And he had this dramatic encounter with Jesus. The second prior event was that the church was growing rapidly by reaching Gentiles. This process starts in Acts 13. The very first church was in Jerusalem, and it was a mostly Jewish church, but the second church that we're introduced to was in the city of Antioch, and from the beginning it was a multicultural church that had a multicultural vision. And so they sent out two men, Barnabas and Saul, to begin to bring the gospel to other cities and other people groups and, and even people who spoke different languages. And one of the ways where, where they found great responses and great uh, fruit was with non-Jewish people. 
So by the time that Paul and Barnabas come back from their first missionary journey, they had to explain themselves to the leaders in the church of how they'd gone to Jewish people first, but their greatest receptivity had been with non-Jews, which leads to the third prior event, the decision that was made by the Jerusalem Council recorded in Acts 15. When Paul and Barnabas returned, they gave their report to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And after hearing from Paul and Barnabas about how non-Jewish people were turning to Jesus, another group that opposed Paul and Barnabas uh, got up and talked about how Gentiles needed to become Jews first in order to embrace Christ, complete with circumcision. The apostles and the church leaders wrestled over these reports and they made a very clear decision not to burden non-Jewish people with all of the obligations and rituals that were part of Old Testament custom and Old Testament law. There were two reasons for that decision. The first was that they realized that salvation comes through faith in Christ, not by keeping the law. And the second was that God had given these Gentile people faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit without being circumcised. So why would they add extra obligations to what God had already blessed? So let's return to our big idea for the day. Great joy comes when we give up everything that interferes with total reliance upon Jesus. We're going to evaluate gains and losses, what we gain and what we let go. Now here's the first principle. Find your joy in Jesus and in Jesus alone. What we gain is Jesus, and that's enough. So Paul starts off this chapter saying, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. And then he adds, It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself has reasons for such confidence. This section starts off with a command, rejoice or find your joy in the Lord. Joy and rejoicing is one of the often repeated themes of this Philippian letter. Although Paul himself is in house arrest, the joy he finds in Jesus colors everything. He wants the Christians in Philippi to know this joy and to live by this joy. And the implication is that he wants us to live by this same kind of joy too. And that no matter what we're going through, the joy of Jesus is approachable and reachable and findable for us. So Paul includes then a warning about a group of joy stealers who come along the way. Who are the joy stealers? They are people who add religious obligations to the grace of God. Notice that Paul gets rather worked up about this in verses 2 and 3. The Bible doesn't tell us not to get angry. It tells us, in your anger, do not sin. And so there's a a place for righteous anger. And Paul, as he writes these words, is showing a little bit of anger as this old debate continues. The reason is that the people who are opposing Paul's message are showing the same attitude that was destroying the church and that Paul has now abandoned. It's the same attitude that Paul had before meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he knows that Jesus changes everything. The second principle is to let go of whatever causes false confidence. So Paul goes on. If others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever gains to whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul looks back on who he was before being transformed by Jesus. And he lists the things that caused him to have this false sense of spiritual confidence. First, he lists three ethnic advantages, at least in the way that uh, Jewish, some Jewish people or the Pharisees looked at themselves in contrast to non-Jewish people. His religious family heritage, which is described as being circumcised on the eighth day. His national identity of the people of Israel. His tribe within Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, he writes. And he sums up his ethnic background this way, a Hebrew of Hebrews. The second part of Paul's list includes three performance factors that were part of his old way of life. And so he says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, that's how committed he was to his way of doing things. And as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's not evaluating himself. He's saying, this was the group that I traveled with, and we were seen this way. The reality is that none of these things brought him closer to God. Only Jesus could do that. And so Paul writes in verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying that Christ is so much of greater worth that I'm willing to let go all of this other stuff because it just doesn't compare to the very Son of God who can bring us into a relationship with the living God Himself. Now, this list may seem odd to us until we take a closer look, but the truth is many people do the same thing today. We say, I'm a good Baptist, or I'm a good Lutheran, or I'm a good Catholic, that should be enough. What we mean by this is, my religious system will get me into heaven. Or we resort to relying on our religious activity. We think, I give to good causes. I actually heard somebody say this one time. I recycle everything. God should honor me for that. Or maybe today, I'm woke. I marched in the right parade. And we can use these things to sort of create our own sense of self-worth and saying we're earning our way to being privileged in the sight of God. Again, the reality is that none of these things bring us closer to God. Only Jesus can. And so we adopt the mindset of Paul. But whatever were gains to me in the eyes of society or my own self-appraisement, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Third, realize that whatever we gain far outweighs our losses. Our big idea is that great great joy comes when we give up everything that interferes with total reliance upon Jesus. And Paul now wants to stress that we must realize that our gains outweigh the losses in the way that we value them. Here's the way he writes this, verses 8 through 11, chapter 3. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is still in the midst of describing this great contrast. He says, for Christ's sake, I have lost everything that once gave me personal pride. He even goes far as to say that once, what was once a source of pride, he now considers garbage. So hear this clearly. Realize what Paul is writing here. Paul was using a figure of speech to make a very strong point. He was not calling Jewish people garbage. He was a Jew. He was not calling Jewish faith garbage. Far from it. He was saying that none of this compares to the transformation that comes from knowing Jesus and having this new life in Christ. Nothing else compares to the inner working of God through Jesus in our lives that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what does a Christ follower gain? A new relationship with God through His Son Jesus, which Paul describes as knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can know Jesus personally by faith. Second, a new identity. He says, being found in Him. That this relationship with Christ becomes our new sense of identity. What we want to be found when Christ returns, we want to be found knowing Him, enjoying Him, living life with Jesus, being found identified in Jesus. Not identified by our own descriptions or our own terminology or our our own sense of self-grandeur but being found in Christ, in mission with Christ, in relationship with with Christ, in love with Christ. And third, a new sense of standing that is not based on performance. And Paul describes it this way, having the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Folks, in every world religion, people are chasing after some kind of righteousness. It's either a righteousness that we create for ourselves by trying to create our own list of what we think will bring us up to God, or through a religious process where we think by doing the right things of your religion, my religion, somebody else's religion will bring us up to a higher level. And Paul here delivers the simple truth. The righteousness that God wants is a gift from God. It comes from God And it is obtained simply by having faith in the message that God has sent this righteousness through Jesus and through his work on the cross for us. Understanding that brings great joy because it liberates us from all of the stuff we have to do, how how we might have to outperform everybody else. Great joy comes when we give up everything that interferes with total reliance upon Jesus. And then here's the fourth principle. Recalculating leads to a new sense of purpose. Verse 12 to the end of the section takes us there. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's goals and the mission Jesus had given him are what are described here. He acknowledges that he hasn't arrived fully at the goal yet, and he's pressing on toward the goal. 
What is the goal? The goal is to glorify God in the way that we serve Jesus. And Paul's personal mission was to share the gospel with Jews, Gentiles, and even to the kings of the world so that other people would hear about the glory of God in Jesus. God has goals and a mission for you and me too. His goal is to transform us so that we become more like Jesus. God's goal is for the heart and mind of Jesus to be lived out in your life. God's goal is for the heart and mindset of Jesus to be lived out in my life so that you with your personality intact and your gifts and your personal distinctions nonetheless are infused with the mind and the heart of Christ. Same thing for me. And each of us has a mission for which we are wired with spiritual gifts, talents, and passions. My mission is to lead and teach faithfully using the gifts and talents that God has given me. Your mission is to contribute to God's work using your gifts and talents faithfully in whatever role he has placed you in life. And we also have a shared mission. Our mission here at North River is helping people who are far from God become fully developed worshipers and servants of Christ. When we talk about that mission, we recognize that we're not just here for ourselves, but we're here to reach people who are spiritually lost and confused, and especially confused about how it is that we have a relationship with God. And so we present the, the message and the ministry of Jesus in that process. Where are we taking people to be open-hearted worshipers and servants in the same way that Jesus was a worshiper and a servant? Then Paul says, we press on to win whatever prize or reward that God has in mind for us. How do we do that? I think this is where vision comes in. And here is the vision of the church that Paul saw. It's the one that I alluded to earlier in Galatians 3.28. It says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul, again, was not saying this is the way that everything operates in the world today. Certainly it didn't in the first century church, and and we certainly have our problems today in the world that we live in. But he saw this as a vision of what the church was becoming, little by little, more and more. And this is the new identity in Christ. This is what it looks like as we grow into it together. Now, Paul wrote these words somewhere around A.D. 58 or A.D. 60. This was a breathtaking vision of what God was up to, and God is still at work producing that same vision through his people today, where the church, the people of Christ, lead the way in three distinct ways. Breaking down barriers that divide people of different races, breaking down barriers that enslave or hold back groups of people, and breaking down barriers to the way that women are regarded and treated in the midst of our society. The church is meant to lead the way with these changes, not to lag behind or to fight behind, and that that the church is meant to be a model of what God is doing in the world. In light of this, North River has a church vision too. A few years ago, our staff and overseers spent hours and hours pondering our vision We ask, what is God calling us to become here on the South Shore? And here is our vision statement. People being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. Simply put, we believe that we are a church where no one's perfect, 
where all are welcome, and where God is transforming us daily through the power of Jesus and the inner working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is the, the principle that Paul in chapter 3 wants to add to our understanding today, that great joy comes when we give up everything that interferes with total reliance upon Jesus. Because when we completely rely upon Jesus, we discover the power of God at work in the human soul, changing us to be more like him. That's my prayer for you today. It's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for the church at large, not just here at North River Church, but the church wherever it exists, that we would live up to this unbelievably clear vision that Paul had and that he writes about in his letters. Let me pray. Father God, we pray that as we continue to grow together, to grow in intimacy with Jesus and to know your scriptures, that we would go beyond all of that to know Christ in all of his power, in all of his glory, and even in his sufferings, so that you would change us from the inside out, making us more like Jesus. Give us the courage not to hold back from this vision that Paul paints for who the church is and what the church is becoming and what you want to do with us. And use each and every one of us to allow that to come true first in our own lives, but then through our association and our work together. That we would become the kind of Christian community that draws people because they see Jesus at work transforming his people and that together they can see that this is good and that this is real and that this brings joy. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord, whom we serve all week long. Amen. Folks, I want to thank you for being a part of our service today. Wherever you are, we're glad that you're a part of the North River family. One of the ways that you can help is through your giving. There are a number of ways that uh, you can do that. Uh, there will be a give button that's showing up on, on the broadcast that you're watching right now. And if you uh, hit that button, it'll lead you to a link. Uh, another way that you can do that is by downloading the North River Church app on your phone. And there's an option there that, that uh, allows you to be able to give directly to us. You can certainly mail a check-in to North River Church, 334 Old Oak Street, Pembroke, Massachusetts, 02359. And uh, if you have the Text in Church app, you can also respond that way as well. But thank you for supporting our church. Thank you for being a part of our church with the ministry that goes on even during this COVID time. How you and I live out our faith day by day makes a difference. Thank you for being here.